And that's Buffalo Springfield, for what it's worth. A um, little history for you here. Uh, on, uh, on May 4th, 1970, where four students were killed at Kent State in Ohio. Um, and I came across of it because I am a Neil Young and, uh, fan, and, I, and, and being a, a child of the 70s, the 60s, actually, and growing up in the 70s with music, um, it always, music always brings you back to who you are and what you are. And uh, I just thought that it'd be appropriate to start off this podcast with For What It's Worth by Buffalo Springfield and remembering what happened 50 years ago today at, in Kent State in Ohio. Um, Today's, today's handicapping show is going to cover one of my favorite people in racing. And he's been a good friend for a long time and known him since my days in California. And when I came out here uh, to Kentucky uh, in 2004, I happened to find him in the press box at Keeneland. His name is Ellis Starr. And we're going to get with Ellis, and we're going to talk to him about his favorite handicapping angle. I got Ellis Starr on the line. Ellis, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the Racing with Bruno with the Works podcast. Um, I, I mentioned before you came on, uh, you and I have been friends a long time. And I, and I say friends, not, not colleagues. Uh, we knew each other in California. Uh, you ventured w- uh, east, and I soon followed. And I, I told everybody how I had the pleasure of running into you when I came up here uh, to Kentucky to find you in the press box at Keeneland. Great talking to you, my friend, and I hope that in this new normal, you and your lovely wife are doing very well. Doing great. I'm glad we're not on Zoom or you'd be seeing me blushing right now. No, 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 no. You can't. You No, no. That would blow my entire, entire uh, idea of you if you started blushing. You know? and, all the, and all the years we've known each other, you still haven't realized that, what a bad interview I am. But thank you for having me and giving this shot anyway. <laughs> you and I always have this, these really awkward conversations sometimes. <laughs> it's like, you know, I don't know. But, uh, but Ellis, you're a fantastic a handicapper. And I really wanted to get the racing fans out there, uh, the Racing with Bruno listeners, uh, an idea of what Ella, who Ellis Starr is. You're, you're a very, you're very, uh, you have a strong presence on Twitter, on social media. Um, you also have to deal with a lot of idiots. But tell us a little bit about Ellis Starr. Who is Ellis Starr? Well, you know, I'm a guy that learned going to the races when I was eight years old, which would be more than 50 years ago. And uh, just like everybody else, just tried various things. Uh, I found a mentor, the late Dick Mitchell, who helped 
just inspires some confidence. I call him the Zig Ziglar of racing for those that had the pleasure of knowing him. Uh, it turned out, unfortunately, that he was a little more of a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do guy because really the only time he bet was when he did seminars and took people to the track, even though he did have the confidence, like you or I and many people listening have, to back up their selections and choices in a race. But one thing I discovered right around that point was that I guess I had a way of writing and talking, I thought, writing for sure, that was interesting to people because when I started to work for Trackmaster in 95, uh, we went from just the first company selling PPs on the internet and VR little handheld device to doing selections and as a way of showing people how to use them because we get a lot of calls, of, hey, how do you use this? What would you do? And, of course, crossing into selections, as you know, is still kind of precarious, even back then particularly so, because there were so many sleazy people out there that would give you the winner in every race, and then, you know, they'd expect the one guy to win to, to pay up. Or I remember walking out of Santa Anita when I was a kid and a teenager after the second race with my dad. We had to get back to work, and there were freshly minioed sheets out there with the winners of the first two races and a big sign that says, call us tomorrow, we could do this for you where they had just printed it out. So in any event... <laughs> oh, you mean the little place next to Santa Anita, right next to the massage parlor that said turf no, no, something? I, no, I, I mean right in the parking lot of Santa Anita. I mean, you'd walk out and there were sheets just dropped there as if they had been sold that day that had the winners. You could smell the ink on the paper. <laughs> I remember that distinctly. That's how sleazy these guys were. So what's interesting, and I'll try and make this shorter now, is that... Uh, when I went to work for Trackmaster in the 90s, and we decided after a couple of years of just selling data, again, the, way before the forum, anybody got into it, when the internet was just not really a thing then, that I started writing analysis. for We did it for free to see if it had any commercial value. And, you know, we had 10,000 hits a month when there was really 10,000 people on the internet. I'm kidding, by the way. In any event, long story short, so... I guess I felt like I had a style and stuff and I just kept doing it and do seminars and groups and the, the written stuff, which most of what I do now is free blogs that people know to follow me on Twitter. Uh, only for the big, big racing days do I do something, but I don't do a lot of races every week. Not like you, because you really put in the work, uh, but I do it for the weekends. And so I just think that's it. One of the things my mentor taught me back to Dick Mitchell was the best way to learn is to teach. And so when I write my analysis, I write what into my thoughts because even if the horses don't run like I hope they will run uh, hopefully that methodology is still good and I'll leave it at that <laughs> did you hear my boy in the background I think he was trying to talk to you I think Joe here wants to know Dick Mitchell now tell, tell us about Dick Mitchell wasn't he uh, speed figures didn't he do speed figures uh, was one of the first ones to really put together speed figures way back when he did a lot of stuff. You know, he's one of the first guys that do a, did a program which picked pace lines. Uh, he was, at some point, kind of in with the Sarton group, but not really. Uh, he did a lot of pars. He had a great guy working for him named Gordon Pine, a brilliant man that did pars. One of the first guys to do pars, like Schwartz did. And they used those pars with the program, the all-in-one programs and some others, to help people get the contenders and they made a line the program made a line one of the first programs that made a line automatically but you had to pick the right pace lines and that was tough for me 
Uh, I, no, now, now yeah, let's just back up real quick because a lot of people may go Sarton who, and yeah. Gordon who, Gordon and, who? and 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 Sarton mythology was a very popular uh, speed figures, and they were way ahead of their time. And I, if I'm not, if I remember correctly, they they uh, they looked at races and shapes. Am I right? Am I right? Yeah, a lot of velocity stuff. A lot of stuff before anybody was doing it. Entropy, which is basically energy loss, velocity, feet per second, uh, lots of not high-end math, but math that wasn't being done at the time to figure out who the fastest horse actually was going to be based on past races projecting the field that's running that day. And Sarton was he was Doc was a brilliant guy. Some people think he was a little bit of a charlatan. Uh, I don't think so. He had great programmers. The Sarton group ended up throwing off guys like Tom Brohammer, Dave Schwartz, Tom Hamilton, and I know I'm forgetting, Jim Quinn, and some other people. I can't remember all the names. Some of the best. Tom Brohammer. Yep, Brohammer. Some of the best pace guys in the world. James Quinn was, was brilliant. I actually got a chance to talk to James Quinn, and if people don't know who he is, I would look him up. And, and get his books off of Amazon. Um, they, uh, James Quinn uh, was part of that whole genre of handicapping uh, gurus in the 70s and 80s. Andy Byers, Steve Davidowitz, Jimmy Quinn, Tom Brohammer. Yep. I got the chance to be really close with James Quinn, and I got a chance to talk to him a while back. And um, he put together some books that I'm sure you read all the books. Um, not everyone, uh, most the, of them. The Handicapper's Condition book is tremendous. Exactly. A little dry, but that, tremendous, yeah. And I'll tell you, the other one is a, the basis. The one that I'm going to mention is the basis where we built our site off of, and that was uh, Handicapping in the Information Age. Yeah. And I yep. remember reading it in 1984 and having an idea in my mind as a handicapper what I wanted, what, a, what would it would look. This is 1984. Yeah. I'm having an idea of what I want to see to be able to handicap. But Ellis, I want to talk about you. Um, you're the national racing analyst for Equibase. Uh, and the one thing that I really, really, I tip my hat off to you, um, you know, uh, is that you do a lot of fan education. Um, and you do a lot of groups at Keeneland and, you you have a you have a much more uh, energetic approach of doing the education than I ever would, um, uh, you know. But tell us a little bit about if people wanted to, uh, like for example, where did they find Ellis Starr and his education classes on handicapping? Like for example, when we're back in normal in in our in our normal routine every day. Well, I appreciate that. It's just a side gig, really. But I, I mean, I love it. it you know, I, I like to think I move the needle a little bit. Uh, one of the things I do, I think, and it's just, I just because how I was taught, and if someone didn't, you know, teach me, my dad, and then Mitchell, and other people, and Quinn, uh, who I was blessed to know as well, and Tom Brohammer, and Doc Sarton, uh, I wouldn't be, I think, where I am. So I'll just say quickly, I never get tired of ask, answering the same question. I mean, I might do a group of people that go to the races twice a year and they might always say, well, I've never understood the exact box. And I'll tell a hundred people that I won't care. And, and there's no, and I know you would as well. 
there's some people that in that do this that would kind of just roll their eyes and say, you know, figure it out for yourself. And I don't think that's appropriate. But basically, I mean, I I get Keelan's hospitality, uh, Keelan hospitality, their group sales, Churchill Downs, corporate suite people. They know what I do, and I hang out with groups for a couple hours to a day, and I interactively answer questions. I don't do I don't really do seminars, but I did start actually this year with the. Bluegrass Community and Technical College. I've been trying for years. You know, a lot of big cities have community education programs through their community colleges, and they do these kinds of things like how to crochet, do your taxes, that stuff. And you do those too? <laughs> no, no, no. I just think, yeah, thank you. No thanks. I'm not getting involved in that. But I always. Well, I was going to sign up for the crochet one. I'm yeah, bored. No, yeah, <laughs> knit, knit one pearl too. That's not me. But I, uh, but I, but I do. But I, but finally, after a few years, and Remy Belloc, who's a friend of mine, you may know Remy used to be with the HBPA, mm-hmm. and, and he, he used to run the uh, jockey school, the North American Racing Academy with McCarran, and he still has a hand in that, of course. Uh, but that's run now through our uh, community, K- Kentucky, has the only jockey school in North America, through, for those who don't know, through the Kentucky uh, KCTCS, Kentucky Community and Technical College System. And Bluegrass Technical College is the one. Anyway, long story short, so they have a workforce. They have a more of a vocational school. And we're doing handicapping classes. We had planned two before we got canceled at Keeneland. Uh, so basic 101s. I'm hoping to do 201s. But then a lot of corporate groups uh, just contact the track or they contact me. They find me or contact Churchill or uh, go to Pre- Pre- Preakness as well. And I hang out with those groups of people. So that's what I, I enjoy doing besides doing my handicapping. It's a lot of fun to hang out with people and just answer a couple questions to help them feel more confident at the windows. Uh, again, it's a very small needle mover, but it, I think it's what this, what we need because so many people come to the track and, you know, after a couple hours, if someone's not explaining stuff to them, they can roll their eyes and they'll come back once or twice, but they'll never become the kind of person when they get older and have more disposable income that they'll be a serious better, which will help the whole industry survive. So can you tell us what an exacta box is? <laughs> a three-horse exacta box is when you pick and two out of the three come in first and second in any order. So I got that memorized because I say it so much. <laughs> so, Ellis, uh, the one uh, thing I wanted to do with uh, various handicappers is discuss a handicap, your favorite handicapping angle. So for the fans out there, tell us. What does Ellis Starr like the best when he handicaps? I'm going to give you two. I know you want one, but I'll do two real quick because one's about a race. And I'm not arguing with that. that. One's about a certain kind of race. One's about a certain kind of horse. And, and they don't come up a lot. When they come up, I'm really excited. So the first one, and I think you'll agree, and people that have been to the races will see this, and it doesn't take long to get this one. This one's easier. This, this goes back to an old cliche from, I think, even Pittsburgh Phil uh, back in the 1920s, you know, that says, don't ask a horse to do something it hasn't done before. Well, one of those is, especially if it's a favorite, I mean, and one of those is, I like dirt route races in which horses are coming back from layoffs. It's got to be three months or more. Running in a two-turn route on the dirt, especially without a prep, and especially a horse that was a graded stakes winner that's running in a non-graded race. And I'll just give one quick example. I'll talk about why that's important or not. First of all, the public almost always looks at the horse as if it ran last month as opposed to three months ago. And that's a huge mistake. You know very well physicality 
And there are trainers that can do it. Fletcher can do it. Brad can do it on the turf. I'm talking about dirt. Some guys can do it, but most trainers can't do it. You can't get a horse to run as if it prepped off a three-month layoff into a route. A route, And for a route for me, it's not a mile, one-turn mile. It's a two-turn race. So anyway, the quick example is there was a horse that came back uh, last month, two weeks ago actually, eight rings in the bachelor stakes, which was not great of stakes, but it was a $300,000 race if I remember correctly. He was four to five. His last race before that was in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile, and then he was the big deal last summer when he won a bunch of races, a couple races at least. But he's coming back at a mile and 16th in a race that's not that important, trying to be asked something. He gets horses that all had run in March and April. The other five, a big long shot in the race. But anyway, but he's going to be four to five because the public's betting him as if he would run last month as opposed to three months ago or longer. And he can't win. He could come a second or third. But when you take out a four to five shot, every other horse in the race has more value for a win bet. So I love that kind of race, Bruno. And that's the first one I'll give out. That's an interesting angle because um, I kind of learned on that particular angle, I kind of learned from Charlie Whittingham. Charlie Whittingham would have these grade one horses come back off a layoff. And when he ran them straight in the grade one, people were kind of – scratching their head wondering, well, God, that horse needs the race. Yep. Usually those fired. Right. But if he brought him back in a cheaper spot, what he was saying is, I've got a graded horse here that I want to run down the road in a graded race. He's not ready to do it now, so I got to put him in a race to get something out of yep. it. And he, he should win on, 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 on his own laurels rather than, than fitness or conditioning at this point. Right. And finally, I'll, I'll never forget when Golden Pheasant, it's a horse that a long time ago, uh, Golden Pheasant was a really, really nice turf horse, grade one turf horse for Charlie. He brought him back in a smaller, uh, I think it was a grade, he brought him back off the layoff in a grade two, or grade three at Del Mar. This is 19, 1991. And you knew that he was pointing for the Arlington Million. He, and he was using that race as a prep. And sure enough, Fly Told Dawn where Rafael Meza beat Golden Pheasant that day, who was three to five. But Golden Pheasant came back to win the Arlington Million. Well, you got to know your trainers. That was, uh, I think, I, during my little spiel on that angle you know i said if it's pletcher if it's brown on the grass if it's pletcher on the dirt and a few other people i think even brad cox you know that are about 20 25 percent going layoff to route and again that layoff for me is 90 days or more that rules out but for 90 percent of the guys and baffert is one of them it's that rule is in you know baffert rarely has yeah. a horse ready to go a mile on the 16th off a layoff he just doesn't do it now. And if he thought if he thought three rings was going to be all of that, he would have gone into a greatest stakes race on Arkansas Derby Day. Right. Absolutely, absolutely correct. So anyway, it's a it's a you it's know. A, so it's, it's a great it's angle. A good angle. Great angle. All right. So the other what else? The other one is one, and, and again, this has to do with pace. And I kind of learned this from one of those gentlemen I mentioned before. I can't remember which one at this point. But what I'm looking at a route, again, talking about routes, and this could be dirt or turf, and you see a horse that you think is kind of one-paced, 
in a sprint that just ran, let's say, fourth from start to finish, or you know, maybe change one position so you'll see in the running line, you'll see fourth, fourth, fifth, fourth, fourth, or you'll see fourth, fifth, fourth, third, fourth. And the and the the lengths behind the leader are pretty close. They don't have to be identical. And this horse is stretching out in the one, two, or three post. Unless there's a lot of speed on the outside, this is a good bet. Because people forget that horses have to run a lot more slowly, stretching out than they did in sprints. And this horse is gonna be on the lead. It's probably going to be running a lot slower than it had to. It probably, hopefully, is the trainer was intending, told the jock in the sprint, hey, let's just get middle position, run about the same throughout, whatever. We don't think he's a sprinter. That's even better. You can assume that sometimes. But I love it when a horse is third, fourth, and fifth throughout a race, in a, not much further back than that, in a sprint, and then stretches out to a route if it's got an inside post and there's not a lot of early speed in the race because you know you're going to have a horse on the lead, probably running pretty easy. All right, so let's give a recap of your two angles. Your number one angle is? Basically, races in which horses, particularly graded stakes winners, are coming back off layoffs of 90 days or more in a dirt route against horses with any kind of good recent form. They're usually not meant to win that kind of race or they're not fit enough to win that kind of race. And if they're the heavy favorite, it's a great race to bet. And you made the case that as a Todd Pletcher, Chad Brown, uh, those are the kind of trainers that they, their horses don't run short. Yeah, and the stats, and the, the stats in most of your PPs, of course, I use stats race lens, but most of your PPs, the stats will tell you the trainer's record. Uh, normally, it's 60 to 180. I would go 90 to 180 or 90 to 120 in that range or 150, you know, and how they do, especially if you can break it down by layoff into a route. It helps you a lot to know which guys you don't want to take a stand against completely in a race like that. And your second angle? A horse is stretching out in a dirt or turf that have pretty even running lines. They've run third, fourth, or fifth from start to finish in a sprint, maybe even two sprints in a row, stretching out. If they've got good position inside, first, second, third post, and there's not any speed outside of them or inside, they look like they could, looks like there's not a lot of speed. Those horses are going to go a lot slower, still have the lead. So basically running, even running lines, stretching out from a sprint to a rep. Fantastic. This is going to be very helpful for a lot of handicappers who love to get interesting angles they can play with. Now, Ellis, tell us a little bit about how we can find you and, uh, and, uh, and, and stay uh, informed on all your uh, happenings. Well, I appreciate that. Best way I mean, I put out all the links on weekends is Twitter which is at Ubercapper, U-B-E-R-C-A-P-P-E-R. Uh, but you can always find the weekly feature race, which is normally a graded stakes at echobase.com under the more section, weekly feature race, also some products there. Uh, I also do some blogs for Keeneland Select. Actually, it's now Keeneland.com because, because there are no racing. Keeneland put all the handicappers' blogs on their main site. So just go to Keeneland.com and look for the handicapping content. And then amwager.com, I do a blog for them every week with two or three races that I think if interested could lead to a profit. So a bunch of blogs. But I tweet them all out. If you follow me at Twitter, uh, you'll be able to get everything on the weekends that I do. What did you think of this weekend's Arkansas Derbies? Well, Charlatan, you know, it was obvious that especially with the scratch of shoot, he was going to be a lone F, lone front runner. Uh, there was nothing to do necessarily for coming in second. So I didn't hit anything in that one. Uh, 
style was one dimensional, but uh, unfortunately, I found out later he'd been training behind. So he, you know, I should have read your stuff probably. Let, well, let's t- let, wait a minute. Let's talk about that. That, that see, to me, people are like, "Oh, well, they taught him how to rate." He was just sitting right outside of the other horse. Yeah, it was true. You know, see, there's there's a difference. A lot of people think just because a horse is a half a length behind. He rated. Well, the one thing that the rider did on Nadal, he kept him off off the inside right. horse. He can, he can get his juices flowing. You know, and and yeah, right. And and if you it, and and people say, well, and then I saw the whole Randy Moss thing on television about, oh, they took him way back. Let me explain to people what Baffert did. He did not have a horse that was fast enough to work head and head with Nadal. So what he did was he put him with a really weak horse in Eclair. But if he puts Eclair inside of Nadal, Eclair is going to go a quarter of a mile and he's going to spit the bit at the three-eighths ball out on the turf course. And Nadal's not going to have anything to go with down the lane. So what does he do? He lets him run off early and gets a long advantage. And Nadal... Gets a long, is going to sit 10 lanes back and make a run. Now, here's the scenario in one of those works where all these geniuses on television don't know what they're talking about. There was another horse on the, in front of them working. And what happened is Nadal put away Eclair immediately, turning for home on one of the works. And then he went after the other horse. Now, Char- uh, excuse me, in the last work, he broke him way, way behind because there wasn't going to be a chance. He didn't want to take a chance that Eclair was not going to carry Nadal to the quarter pole. And sure enough, he got Nadal to stretch out and extend to catch Eclair, who as soon as, as, soon as Nadal got next to him said, I give yeah. up, you know. So there, there, it, it wasn't about raiding the horse. It was about getting him to get fitness. And they able to extend themselves and stretch out and, and get the work that, that Baffert wanted. I get that. And, and I, 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 I listened to that whole thing. And I'm looking at like, he has no idea what he's yeah, talking I get that. about. But look at, oh, he sat way back. No, he, and he, no, no. That's not. No, look no, at the PPs, no. though. He looked like a need the lead type. And based on what you said, if I had paid more attention to the workouts, I would have seen that he was still running the same kind of race. But at least he was learning to sit behind another horse. I'm not saying rated, take back. I just mean you learn you don't have to go to the lead. Your juices don't get flowing. And he did. He got a dream trip. Look, and I think King Guillermo ran a great race. You know, he just he just could not outfinish Nadal, and everybody else was kind of, eh. I don't know how good those divisions are going to be now because, you know, you've got two Bafferts, and we'll have to see who else comes out of the woodwork. I mean, it's going to be very interesting. I also have to see how Tisla Law progresses. Well, one, one thing, if we can go back on the works, one thing you don't want to do in the morning is you don't want to put horses head and head. That's when you get them speak crazy. Yeah. So what Bob does is either starts one slightly in front of the other and he takes the horse that he's trying, that he's pointing to, to the race, with, let's say Nadal or a Justified, and he'll put them three lengths on the outside of the outside of the other horse. You put them at the hip. 
of the other horse, on the hind hip of the other horse. So what happens is you're not putting them head to head. You're not putting them eye to eye. Then you put them eye to eye, that's when you create a one-dimensional horse. Now, Charlatan, if you watch him in the morning, Charlatan just pulls hard. Yeah, He's only got one way to go. I don't know if he wants to be rated. There was a, a, a work where he broke two behind another horse, and within three strides, he was up on that horse. So let me ask you a question. Um, let me Hypothetically, then. So if Shooter Shoot stays in that race and decides to go, does Charlatan win? Because that depends if, sh- if Shooter Shoot can go 23, yeah. 22 and 4, 23, let's, 1, 23, let's 3. That's their only, I, let's assume, I, I don't let's know. Assume that's their only asset. And they say, I've got to go 23, 46. And Charlatan's uses kick in. What happens to a horse like that under that scenario? That's what I hope was going to happen that Shooter Shoot scratched. It's not that simple, though, Ellis, because a lot of horses look like they've got the speed. But when you put them in that situation, Charlatan is, is a horse that's going to have his head in front uh, and he's going to mess with the other horse. I'll give you a great example. Um, there was a work in 2014 between Painter and Flashback before the Breeders' Cup at Santa Anita. And Painter, Painter taught me how horses mess with other horses. And here's how. You and I are going to break from the pole, right? Let's just say I am much quicker than you. And I break from the pole before I give you a chance to to really gather yourself. I break from the pole. Now you got to scramble to get after me. Every time you get within a length of me, I kick again. And then I sit. I wait for you to come to me. I kick again. And then I sit. And I watched Painter play with flashback that day. Flashback was by Tappet, one other Baffert. And every time Flashback made up the two lanes, Painter would kick away another lane. And just tormented Flashback in that whole entire drill. That it, it got inside the 16th ball, Flashback was like, I'm done. I, 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 I just can't. I don't want to play this game. It's not what I like to do. He was tired. So then we go to the races. Flashback is in a um, allowance rate, a little minor stakes on the undercard. He's one to five. And I remember in in the way I wrote the workout, I said, Painter just messed with Flashback's head. He's not going to win today because it's all he's going to think about is what happened to him with Painter. And sure enough. He, he couldn't keep up with the field. He tried to rain, run a couple of rain, and then he kind of flattened out, and I think he finished third or something. But uh, some horses, people just think two horses hook up, they're going to kill each other. One of them, who's the more classier horse, the smarter horse, is going to mess with that other horse. And uh, maybe that other horse is going to carry Charlatan to the quarter pole in a much more relaxed manner because Charlatan is just saying, I got this guy. I don't have to do anything. I got him. I got him beat. And that's the interesting part sometimes about watching these, these races and watching these horses. And that 
you see something like I saw with Painter and Flashback, and you go, wow. Wow. I've you know? seen it a few times. Uh, I mean, it, it's just a beautiful part. It. This isn't about that, but you remind me, though, one of my favorite examples is that, and I said this uh, back, this was the, what, the 2018 Travers, but I had watched Catholic Boy in the Pennine Ridge and then in the Belmont Derby, and both times he had played with Analyze It. He let Analyze It get in front, yes. and then he said, ha, ha, no, and he did it. And then when it came time for the Travers, he did the exact same thing to Mendelssohn. Now, Mendelssohn's not, the, uh, you know, I would say you're not a super horse. But still, in those three races, when Catholic Boy was in the right mood, he played with his food three day, three races in a row where he just let a horse get him right about the 8th of the 16th, and then he just put him away or he just kept the neck in case the Travers he drew off by a few. But those first two, which were very narrow margins, I think they were neck in each uh, it was interesting, and I and I happened to watch it, like tried to watch it objectively, and said, you know what, this is one smart competitive horse because he's going to do that. He's going to let the other guy get a length. He's going to think that he's got it, and he's going to come back and just nail him right at the wire. I got a guy. I got I got uh, Michael Joyce mad at me at TVG because he thought I called him a simpleton, but I, I think we were discussing. And I love Mike. I think Mike is one of the great um, personalities on television. He's a lot of fun to watch. And we were talking about the CC and uh, um, Ollie Scandy. Is it Ollie Scandy? Uh, Race a couple weeks ago at at Art in Oakland. And it was the it was the um, um, it was the big Philly and Mayor race. The the Sorry, not, not, not I know, I'm not drawing a blank too. For that. Yeah, uh, Apple Blossom. Yeah, and I, I, I made the comment that, and, and, you know, people get a little irked the way I said it, but simpleton handicappers view a horse cutting out all the fractions. And not holding on and just missing. Oh, what a great effort. What a great effort. And they miss everything else. Sese ran a race that my jaw dropped at at the wire. And the little things that people miss when they're just looking at the splits and the speed and who held and who didn't. Holly's Candy had cut the pace, put everybody away. Sessie had moved really easily outside of, um, of, of Holly's Candy inside the eighth ball. Yep. Sessie thought the wire was the 16th ball. She pricked her ears. She had her nose in front, but she pricked her ears like I won the race. And then realized that a rider then stopped riding and looked over at Ollie's candy and said, oh, no, it's not over yet, and still got her nose down. And I said, she did yep. a zenyata. She was able to regroup mentally on the fly and get her head down. 
And if you watch the replay, you can see her easing herself up as she hit the 16th pole with her ears up. She didn't know where the wire was. She saw the mirror and she thought that's where the wire was. And it was the second wire. So, and that's another pet peeve of mine. The first and second wire races, short stretch races and long stretch races. I think those confuse horses. They really, it really confuses them. And, um, but that's another uh, story for another podcast. Ellis, we've covered a lot of ground. And um, I really appreciate you coming on. Can you believe 35 minutes went just like that? I told you I was a bad interview, didn't I? (laughs) Yeah. Well, Ellis, you are a star. Thanks, brother. All right. Hey, great talking to you. Say hello to your wife. You guys stay safe. And I All right, everybody. See you enjoy and make some money out there. Bye. All right. Take care, buddy. And that's Ellis Starr. And um, I really enjoy talking to him. He's a really good handicapper. He works hard at it. He can do something I can at that handicap three cards at one time. Yeah, everybody have a great day. For what it's worth, remember, we all